Hi everyone, we're joining you again from the Sonic Arts Center at Queen's University and we're so thrilled to welcome Belfast-born journalist, author, and co-founder of the Oh Yeah Music Center, Stuart Bailey. In our last episode, we talked about conflict, politics, and peace through the troubles. And in this episode, we'll dive more specifically into music's role through the 30-year conflict. explains in his book, Trouble Songs, music has not been a passive voice. It has called for subversion and disobedience. It has put out stories that have challenged the given histories. And in the place of the old stuck ideas, music has imagined new fixes. The punk rockers, ravers, and rogue strummers have all done their job. Stuart, welcome to Grounded on Purpose. Thank you. I love that quote. I truly believe music and the arts are, are one way through this conversation and learning our histories. So I talked a little bit about this in our last episode. We really walked through the politics of the troubles and our listeners have a great understanding of the conflict. But your work to me, when I, as I was reading it, and I've been reading your articles and all you've done, it's like a march through the troubles in the form of a playlist. You interviewed more than 60 people in this book and explained how John Lennon, Paul McCartney, U2, Van Morrison, the Cranberries, the Clash, the Pogues, Bananarama, and so many others played a role in this conflict. But what inspired you to write about the troubles through songs? Well, I'm a music journalist, so I, I've been writing since 1985. Prior to that, I was in various bands. I was a, a very mediocre bass player, but I, I was kind of lit up by punk rock. So, you know, music has informed my life for, for, for since I was a teenager. And, uh, you know, I've moved back to Belfast and I've, I've, I've kind of tried to assess where I'm going. And, and I think one of the constants for me then was, was this soundtrack talking about the early days of the conflict and then articulating the worst days of the conflict and then trying to find solutions to the conflict and, and more recently commenting on post-ceasefire. So I, I've been involved and, and, and uh, you know, I, 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 like a lot of people, I've read the history books about the conflict and I've watched the news with dismay for a lot of years and I've heard a lot of shouting and a lot of sectarian division and, and I've, I've, I've felt a, a great pressure on a lot of people to stay in the sectarian trenches. This is your patch and this is the other guy's patch. But music has, has, has kind of punched a lot of that. So it's made me think a lot more about my own place in the world and it's given me the confidence to look at received wisdom and go, actually, I'm not having that. So... You know, uh, even now people will talk about the two traditions in Northern Ireland, you know, loyalist and Republican or the Protestant and Catholic. And and my tribe is alternative Ulster. My tribe is, is a different place entirely. So certainly the, the, the more recent years of my life, I'm trying to help to build that and, and to get away from the, the binary shackles of, of Northern Ireland narrative. Yeah. And I, I think it was interesting just on that point of how music kind of speaks through the troubles. You start the book with punk and a story about the band Stiff Little Fingers, and they were a huge influence on Bono and U2, among others. But you write in the book, Trouble Songs, after hearing the music of SLF, people became open to new thoughts. They started to question their own traditions and receive bigotry. 
They listened to lyrics like Wasted Life and Suspect Device, and they made a decision to step away from paramilitary organizations. So SLF formed in 1977 at the height of the Troubles. How many bands like SLF were coming out, and was it dangerous for them to do so? Well, yes. Basically, the, the you know, music, you know, in most narratives in, in the American cowboy films, you don't shoot the piano player. You know, even if there's a there's a shootout in the bar, the guy in the corner is still playing the piano and nobody's going to harm him. And, and, and you know, you, you always think in that context, you know, let the guy write the songs or let the woman articulate her with her voice. And then in 1975 in Northern Ireland, we had the Miami Show Band Massacre, where a harmless bunch of entertainers were, were pulled across to the side of the road. And it's a very long story, but they, you know, they were machine gunned at, at, at point blank range. And, and the British state was involved. There was a lot of strange collusion happening. We're not quite sure even now what happened, but something very dirty happened. And entertainers were perceived to be a valid target for someone's version of the conflict. And I, you know, I was born in 1961. I, I, I vaguely remember pre-conflict. I don't remember too much about it. I, I grew up during the conflict. And I, I do remember the, the, the Miami Choban killings. And at that point, you didn't really go out much anyway. You know, family, you know my parents were just constantly anxious about their children. And the centre of Belfast had a, a ring of steel, so there was a whole security system around the city, and, and at night you didn't really go out. And a lot of places of entertainment and a lot of bars and pubs had been blown up. So the whole infrastructure of entertainment had had gone by 1977. There were a few random discos, People used to party outside of town. They would drive up the road to Belfast Lock to places like Bangor. But when punk arrived, punk, the philosophy that went along with punk was that you made your own entertainment and that you were your own source of truth. Um, and when you put that in the context of, of Northern Ireland and, you know, the American author Grail Marcus says the essence of punk is two words, question everything. And when you put question everything into a northern context, that becomes extremely exciting. So the punks started just to, to make their own fun and, and to, to book private parties in hotels. So, you know, on, on under, you know, pretending to be a, a birthday party when it was a punk gig. And eventually then in 1977, the gigs were happening more regularly in Belfast in 1978. There was a place called the Harp Bar, which was just on the edge of the, the, the security ring of steel. And all of a sudden, this generation were, were handed a, an opportunity, really, to be excited and to be there themselves and, and to, to, to tell their own story. And then you're listening to, you know, bands like the Sex Pistols and the Clash, and you're hearing them perhaps on the John Peel show or you're, you're buying those records. And, you know, the Sex Pistols have a song called Anarchy in the UK. And they're mentioning the UDA and the IRA. They're, they're mentioning the paramilitary organisations in Northern Ireland in their lyrics. And, and saying this is part of the disintegration of the United Kingdom. And also then the Clash are, you know, say, saying have a ride of your own. 
are you going backwards? Are you going forwards? Are you taking over? Are you taking orders? You know, they, they, these incredibly empowering statements and in a very sharp, aggressive, emancipating way that, that, that appealed to teenagers like myself. And this, this is a very long way of me getting around to talking about Stiff Little Fingers, but Stiff Little Fingers had been a kind of a rock band with long hair and flared trousers who understood then what way the wind was blowing and, and you know, got excited by that and had people around them that were encouraging the right political lyrics. So they were writing songs like Suspect Device, which the, the idea is that a suspect device was something that was found in a, in a shop. And it could be an incendiary device or a bomb and, and you had to empty the shop. And so the idea that a teenager could be a suspect device that, that could be loaded with bad material in their in their minds or or, or, or perhaps loaded with good material that was going to explode in a different way. To, to, to throw that metaphor at, at, at the, the people of Northern Ireland, the young people, was very exciting. And Wasted Life is a song about not joining a paramilitary organization, which again is very, you know, people people were shot for looking at people funny in those days, you know, to, to, to write a song about don't join the paramilitary organizations, that was quite, a, quite brave mm -hmm. and quite exciting. And then finally, then their second single, I don't say finally, but the, this, this thing comes to fruition, a song called Alternative Ulster. And that is, you know, when, they, when Stiff Little Fingers play it now, they, they, uh, Jake Burns, the singer, says, please be standing for the national anthem. And all the old punks all stand up and cheer. And, and they've got their kids with them and their grandchildren. So this idea that you could have an alternative national anthem called Alternative Ulster, which is calling you away from division. And, you know, almost every line in that song is a throwdown. So it's like alter your native land, you know, grab it and change it, it's yours. You know, so it's literally, you, you know, you, you can be active in this story. You can be part of an exciting new way of looking at, at history in Northern Ireland, a non-sectarian future. I've met many people over the years that have said, when I heard those songs, I made the decision not to join a paramilitary organization and not to kill people. So there are people walking around Northern Ireland now who are alive because of some punk rock songs. And that's very exciting. That's really powerful. Yeah. That's the power of pop culture. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, we saw, and I, I'm going to harken back kind of to the U.S., but in the U.S. we saw in the 70s during the civil rights movement, we saw a lot of this as well. But, you know, from my observations, you know, as an American, as the decades have worn on, a lot of musicians now are told to just shut up and sing, you know, keep politics out of it. And I kind of feel, and, and I hope, you know, I hope I'm wrong. I hope it's not across the world, but it does feel like protest music and rhetoric that can challenge some ideas is really starting to die down because of this, because of this backlash. How is it here in terms of singing, you know, or, or anything in pop culture, but bands really taking on political stances? Is it something that's still being done? Or was that a time during the Troubles where that happened? Do you think it'll come again? I think we're in a really sweet spot at the minute. You know, in 1968, 69, in Northern Ireland, they imported 
songs from the civil rights movement in America, we, specifically We Shall Overcome, which became very important, and We Shall Not Be Moved, and songs like that. What we have now is a different set of civil rights that are being fought for or contested. So until recently, we didn't have marriage equality in Northern Ireland. So that became a huge issue. A lot of big marches, a lot of people, and, and the LGBTQ plus community um, was very much part of that musically. So if, if you listen to an artist like Susie Blue, she has a song called People Like Us. And part of the, the, the line of the song, People Like Us, they say it's just a choice or it's all a choice. This idea that LGBTQ was a lifestyle position, and that was being put out a lot by right-wing politicians in Northern Ireland. So we have a very healthy, you know, I mentioned Susie Blue. There's bands like Gender Chores, Problem Patterns, a lot of it coming from a punk rock perspective, but also a feminist perspective and a, and a non-binary perspective. So there's probably 10 bands in, in, in Northern Ireland that are on the money all the time writing stuff that's very good and putting together events and, and, and the, there's a there's a film documentary come out recently called Let Us Be Seen which which follows a lot of these you, you kind of think they're almost disparate and then all of a sudden you realise they're, they're parts of a, a bigger story and so that's great and and the the, the killing of the, the young journalist Lyra McKee also set off a, a really important lot of discussions. Well, why did this person die? And she, she was shot while she was covering a dissident Republican uh, event in Derry. So again, she's become a figurehead really for, for, for a different place. And, and, and one of the Lyra McKee lines is, I think it is, it should be better. Or we, we, we want it to be better, which has become a, another motto really. So pride marches in Northern Ireland are, are hugely important to equality, reproductive rights, as well as the sort of anti-sectarian sentiment. So I could probably put together a, a playlist of 20 amazing tracks of, of what's happening at the minute. So I'm very reassured that music continues to do great work here and, and it's not being... You know, it probably doesn't have access to mainstream media, but the, the people who need to hear it are hearing it. So as well as punk rock, you've got high art attacking this twisted, intolerant society in Northern Ireland. So to be a music journalist or someone and a music fan in the middle of all that is, is, is very exciting. So I'm very, I'm just very, I, I feel very positive about the role of music in Northern Ireland still. I think it's, it's pointing out the shortcomings and it's pointing the way forward. And you don't have the backlash here. Like I was explaining, you know, in America, we have a lot of fans who do say, just stop with the politics, you know, stop, or even in sports, in, in any kind of event, we don't want to hear it. Just do what you do, sing. And I think that's really, in a lot of ways, challenged the protest music. So like in, in the 70s, during the civil rights movement, we talked about we shall overcome and other things transcending borders. Do you think Ireland's pop culture in that way or songs could transcend borders into the U.S. at a time when the U.S. is so divisive, there's so much going on, there's a lot of civil rights issues? Do you see it going, you know, across the border the other way this time? Well, I think a lot of the conversations move around 
So, you know, a lot of the punk acts in Northern Ireland, like Problem Patterns, have been listening to Bikini Kill and Kathleen Hanna and the Riot Girl movement in America. So I think countercultures talk to each other. I'm less interested in what the mainstream does because the mainstream is, is sanitized to, to a great extent. But, you know, over, over the many years that I have moved around, we'd be very aware that Kurt Cobain and the Beastie Boys knew what was happening in Northern Ireland through music. You know, when the Beastie Boys came to Belfast, they wanted to go to Good Vibrations Records, you know, the, the which is a shop, but also a record label that put out songs by the Undertones and Rudy and the Outcasts and stuff. So those conversations float around, you know, can we take credit for anything that's happening in, in America? I don't know. You know, I think grunge took the long way round from punk in, in England, which which previously was something that happened in New York. So, you know, these things, there's a there's a ping pong game that, that goes on a lot of the time and, and, and it comes out in the most surprising places, be it, you know, Seattle or or, 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 or Washington or, or wherever, you know. So, but yeah, I would be, you know, if, if, if you meet a band like Fugazi, you know, in, in Washington, D.C., they know what happened in Belfast and we have a, quite a famous film called Shell Shock Rock, which was filmed around 1970 in Belfast. And it's really low res, it's grainy and gritty. And they were using whatever free film stock they could get. So all bits of the film are all shot on different kinds of film. And But it's so exciting. And Thurston Muir from Sonic Youth cites it as one of his favorite ever films. So, you know, we think this is funny. The Thurston Muir knows what, what, you know, what we were doing. But that's great, you know, that, 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 you know, so, so, you know, just as people in Kingston, Jamaica in, in 1969 or 1970 in the, the early days of reggae music, they weren't necessarily saying we're going to impact on, on, on pop consciousness around the world. But, you know, the music was of such a high quality and so well articulated and they had good people helping to bring it to different parts of the world that it had its impact. And I think when 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 underground music is sort of unselfconscious, that's probably when it's at its best. Arguably, sometimes when when a band like U two will get on a platform and sing Sunday Sunday Bloody Sunday, it might you know the the message might reach a lot of people, but it's going to be diluted probably. Yeah, and I think that's a really good you know with with U two, it's a good kind of point. As I was looking through your books your book and looking at the pictures and reading the interviews. You did a great interview with Bono that's in Trouble Songs. And you ask him about the moment he was able to get John Hume and David Trimble, so two politicians from opposite sides of the aisle, to shake hands on stage in 1998. And he was doing a lot aside from Bloody Sunday, right? He was talking about Ireland. He's obviously from Dublin, and, and he knew the Troubles. He knew Belfast. How significant was it for Bono to kind of get involved and to have that handshake on stage, to be speaking to the world, you know, in that way? The politicians didn't speak actually at all. And he said that was very intentional. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I, I think prior to that, Stadium Rock was, was a big thing in the 80s, really, which was, you know, bands like U2, Simple Minds, 
to a degree, people like Sting and Peter Gabriel and uh, Jesse Chapman and various other people. And there was Amnesty International and they were supporting big causes. Bruce Springsteen was sort of part of that. And they would, you know, sing songs that had very obvious choruses and and, and 20,000, 30,000 people would punch the air, you know, when they were singing those songs. And... Northern Ireland became part of the repertoire of stadium rock. You know, Simple Minds had a terrible song called Belfast Child. <laughs> the Police had a song called Invisible Sun. You two had a series of songs, including Sunday Bloody Sunday. And and I think people in Northern Ireland kind of resented it to a lot of degrees. It's like, well, you know, we're in this drawn out sectarian struggle. People were talking about the acceptable level of violence, which which by the eighties were going. It's okay. We're not getting blown up every day. It's we're we're okay. We just we just we just bite the bullet, you know, and put up with random bombs and ten killings a week rather than forty killings a week. But this moment, then, as we're getting towards a ceasefire, and there's lots of spade work going on, and people like John Humor behind the scenes, trying to engineer conversations with the different people and trying to test the parameters of what what would be an agreed ceasefire, what would be an agreed peace process. And still people outside the tent screaming and shouting. George Mitchell and various other people helped to engineer the Good Friday Agreement. And again, and cynicism is being poured out from all sides, but also there's this bewildering glimmer of hope. You go, wow, this, 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 there's something here. So they get it over the line. They, 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 they get a lot of people supporting it, a lot of different parties. They have various plenary meetings where everyone's together, apart from mostly the DUP and the, the extreme unionists who are going, no, we're not part of this. So it looks like it's happening, and then it has to go to a referendum. So the people in, in, in Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland have to vote on the Good Friday Agreement. And around that time, then there are paramilitaries coming out of jail and they're kind of grandstanding at, in front of their own people. And the moderates are starting to get spooked. They're kind of going, oh, you know, is this what we signed up for? Is it, is it going to be these, these guys coming out of jail, telling us what to do and taking the credit and becoming folk heroes? And so the popular vote for the referendum was starting to dip ahead of the vote. And at very short notice then, the, this gig is put together at the Waterfront Hall in Belfast. I think three or four days notice. And, and literally you two are going, yeah, okay, we've got no gear. Can you get us, can we borrow some kit and we'll set up and we'll play? We want a, a band from the north of Ireland to represent. And that became the band called Ash from Down Patrick. And they wanted, it wasn't just going to be John Hume and the Nationalists. It had to be Trimble as well, representing the the more moderate unionists. And it was 2,000 school children at the event. I was the compere, so I was very excited. And and, and everybody's going, this is, it's, this is mad. This is, um, but as a gig, you know, sonically it was terrible. Everyone was just kind of winging it and playing borrowed amplifiers and making mistakes. But it was the first time that Trimble and Hume the two moderate leaders from the, 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 the two traditions shook hands. And, and, and even thinking about that now, it's just absurd. You know, how can they never have shaken hands before? But it was such a messed up place. 
And Bono then was the guy who kind of choreographed the handshake in the middle of this gig. And he was consciously basing it on an event that happened in Jamaica when Bob Marley, the singer, got Manly and Siaga, the two Jamaican politicians, to shake hands. He knew what he was doing. He knew. And it was an amazing moment. And, and all of the world's media was at that gig because they were in, in town for the week to cover the event and they were covering these very dour conversations. And all of a sudden, this, the, the biggest band in the world probably at that time, you 2 were there with, with a local band who were doing very well, uh, full of kids, and people started talking about the future. Like, this is, this is your children. This is, this is what it's about. This is the handshake. These very awkward men, and, and they're taking their jackets off and they're taking their ties off. And they kind of wandered in, and, and, and it, but it happened. So, so the, that image, the handshake, and, and Bono then, he held their hands up above their head like prize fighters. That went around the world. And, and it's interesting because building up to that, so they had... You know, you two. If we if we break down just you two, they had a lot of songs that were building up to that moment. There were some that were received not so great. Some, you know, in in different parts of the world. But you know, in America, Bloody Sunday probably brought awareness to the conflict when maybe Americans weren't paying attention, yeah, which happens, yeah. right? But then this moment when you say a musician can or a band can help mediate the political sphere, change a vote by 3%. Yeah. Like we can't move the needle yeah. in America yeah. by yeah. that, yeah. by any yeah. means. Yeah. Is is that still possible today? Well, I think in the Republic of Ireland, the two things that passed was the marriage equality vote and the repeal in the eighth for reproductive rights. And all of the fringe organizations be it social organisations, be it musicians, be it various other people, all chipped in. And what, you know, the Republic of Ireland always perceived as a very right-wing, socially conservative place was kind of changed by counterculture again. And, 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 and then that, that, that moved north. You know, the north is next was, was one of the lines that came out a lot. And... The idea that you could have marriage equality in Northern Ireland, you know, the, you know, when when I was growing up, the the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party, had a campaign called Save Ulster from Sodomy. You know, they they, you know, Northern Ireland, it was still illegal to have have gay consensual sex for for years after it was it was made legal in 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 the UK. So. Um, you know, those are the kind of things that, you know, people have realized that the issue politics and music and, and all the other things that go along with popular culture can be moved given the right time and the right focus. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we're seeing playing out now. Now the pendulum could swing and, you know, we're seeing internationally there's, there's almost like pushback on socially liberal movements and that might well happen. You know, and again, again, you'll you you probably find that the the counterculture will be tested. You know, they they probably had it slightly easier recently than 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 in the past. So we we don't know. We're we're in a very bewildering world at the minute. But I just think every now and again, there's a, a voice comes up in song that 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 challenges us to 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 think about that. And you know, the the other period around the time of stadium rock a very different thing was happening where you had folk singers like christy Murray singing about the hunger strikes in the maze prison where 
you know, 10 Republican prisoners were dying by, by refusing to take food, by contesting the way they were treated in prison. And, and, and Christy Moore, the music that he was putting out as a solo artist and as a, with the band Moving Hearts, that was so dangerous and so edgy, much more edgy than Simple Minds, you know, in a stadium in California singing Belfast Child. You know, and again, that was, okay, this is almost the unspoken thing that these musicians are going to, they're going to tour around Ireland playing while hunger strikers are dying one by one. And, you know, it was, it was to an extent a PR thing because they staggered the hunger strike. So they died moment after moment after moment over a period of time. And, you know, again, that was, that's part of my youth watching that and feeling very conflicted and very upset. Yeah. And I think the musicians felt that. I, I remember this quote from your book, too, from Paul McCartney. You know, he, they're obviously from Liverpool. And he said, my family comes from Ireland. Half of Liverpool comes from Ireland. That was the shocking thing. We were fighting us and we'd killed them very visibly on the news. And John Lennon, you know, was going through, he had a lot of conflicted viewpoints as he went. And you write about that. You know, he would write about the IRA, but then he would write for peace. Yeah. And he was kind of almost working out his feelings, but also just telling the people about it. And at one point, the FBI got involved, and you you talk about this in the book as well. How did this affect, I, I think, from your standpoint, you know, it, it's not often looked at under that microscope of this movement, the biggest bands, U2 or the Beatles, talking about these things. But how did this affect the band? And then how did that affect the public sphere as the bands were saying these things? Well, I, you know, Bloody Sunday, uh, you know, British paratroopers shot and killed 14 innocent people, you know, and, and, and for, for decades evaded responsibility and, and, and tried to smear the victims and all sorts of stuff. You know, I was probably too young, you know, I was 10, I think, when that happened. So I didn't quite understand what was happening. I just remember there was a lot of stress and anxiety and anger and, and hot words. But, you know, for most people, it was it was kind of obvious that something horrendous had happened on British soil, on, 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 on you know, United Kingdom territory, contested territory, be it, you know, it was in Derry. And it was a civil rights march. And again, I think music sort of took a little bit of a lead. And Paul McCartney would have been perceived as less political than John Lennon, probably at that stage. But he was the first guy out of the block. So he, he released a song, Give Ireland Back to the Irish, which was the first single by Wings, as I, as I remember. And not a great song. It was this kind of cod reggae uh, and, you know, the first line is, well, is it Great Britain, you are the greatest or whatever. So he's kind of flattering the British state. And he was going, come on, but hey, you're great, but you've just killed 13, 14 people. And it was a, it was a broadcasting ban, so so you couldn't hear the record. And then, and then I think Paul, Mc, Paul McCartney, you know, AMI Records was part of the British establishment. So, you know, he, he had everyone from the the top of the organization down saying, please don't put this out. This, you know, we don't want you to do this. So, but Paul McCartney put it out to his credit, I think. And then shortly afterwards, John Lennon put out Sunday Bloody Sunday. Uh, and around that time, he had been singing about the Black Panthers and what was happening in Detroit and, and various places. And, and that became the era of radical chic. 
you know, it was people running around with berets and giving clenched fist salutes. And Tom Wolfe, the, the American writer, wrote a great piece about radical chic and how it became, you know, everybody in Manhattan um, society parties wanted a, a, a Black Panther at their party, you know. So so it, it there was a lot of posture in came along with that. And again, that's the price of, 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 of you know, radical ideas often get purchased by the, the middle class and, and, and used as a, as a sort of a badge of worthiness. But I think some of the songs will always stand up. And, and the reason I wrote the book was I had all these random anecdotes and stories and events in my head. And I thought, well, I'm going to try and put it in a, in a shape, in a form that will span the conflict. And even as we're getting into ceasefire and the cranberries are singing songs like Zombie, you also have club culture coming up and they're taking ecstasy and they're getting empathetic and they're hugging each other. And this song from Orbital comes out called Belfast and it's a beautiful song. So they put out a beautiful song called Belfast. It was quite radical as well because, you know, normally Belfast is is about liberal hand-wringing and... and, and video shot in black and white and slow motion shots of children crossing the wasteland, the urban wasteland. So, you know, God bless music. It just it can take you to places that you're not expecting and can challenge all sorts of given stories. Well, my last thing, we haven't talked about someone who has been a huge influence and is from Belfast and you've written extensively about right. Van Morrison. Yeah. Yeah. And he used music in a much different way. You know, he had more of that gospel tone he i i'm thinking of the movie belfast and his whole soundtrack you know it's all van morrison but there are a number of ways to bring the community together do you think he had kind of a a whole different aside from the the protest and and other music we've kind of talked about did he kind of bring in a new view of belfast and the troubles well, and you know, Van Morrison's rise really during the rhythm and blues era was was around nineteen sixty five. So it's kind of pre conflict in a way. Obviously, a lot of the problems existed then, and and what were were going to become obvious. But you know, uh, that that era was about personal emancipation, about being your own person and and being free. So he kind of put that out. And then he put out this record, Astral Weeks, in 1969, 68-69. And, and that became, it was like a vision of paradise just before the conflict happened. And the, these beautiful people and, you know, there's a, there's a personality or a song called Madame George about this ambiguous character strolling around Belfast, you know, and playing dominoes in drag. You think, well, how... And uh, so, so I, I remember an, the older generation, when I was sort of getting into punk, they're going, oh, you know, that's almost like our requiem. That was just the, the moment when everything seemed possible and then it shut down. Mm. The conflict shut everything down. So Van Morrison went to America, had a mid-Atlantic accent, was wearing flares. And, and to us, he was like he wasn't he wasn't one of ours anymore. He, he'd let the, the team down. He'd, he'd left us the same way that Liverpool people felt the Beatles had left them and gone to live in London. So, you know, there, there, there was obviously still fans, but it was like, well, you know, we're, we're going through this pain. You're not even acknowledging it. You're not even playing here. And, and he put out this song called St. Dominic's Preview, which is a song about a vigil. 
a vigil in, I think it was in San Francisco or somewhere else. St. Dominic's is a church in, in San Francisco. The vigil was somewhere else. But he heard about a peace vigil in Northern Ireland. And in that, that Van Morrison way, he assembled all these, these little scraps of vision and, and ideas and, and wrote this beautiful song, which is about him being absent from Northern Ireland, him grieving for the conflict and what was happening in Northern Ireland, and then him having, as a, as a musician signed to a major record label, having to go about his job of promoting the new album and talking to the journalists. And the, the song has got this, this, is biz, this slightly depressing scenario whereby he's got to promote the record and talk to journalists and there are freedom marchers out on the street. So it was a, kind of an interesting song in that he didn't get on a, a soapbox and say, I know the answers. It was a song of sorrow and probably not even obvious that it was about Northern Ireland in a lot of ways, but I think it was a very, well, it was, I think it was a great piece of art. You know, it was a great expression of, I don't know what to say here, but I'm, I'm, I can feel it in my bones. And, and, and he was largely outside of the debate then, really. He, you know, he, he was writing a lot of personal songs, really, more than anything. As the ceasefire process started to to come together and the Clintons arrived in Northern Ireland to turn on the Christmas tree lights and Van Morrison was on a little stage playing saxophone and, and you know he sang he sang Days Like This and he, he sang a couple of other songs. Alongside him was a, a guy from West Belfast called Brian Kennedy. And in a way he he used his music to kind of usher in the peace processor. He 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 allowed himself to be co-opted which for Van Morrison to be a very contrary guy to allow himself to be co-opted was quite a big. And then he used a line from Coney Island, which became part of the, the ceasefire PR campaign, which was a line from Coney Island was, wouldn't it be great if it was like this all the time? And that became part of, again, the, the building trust and building the message so I don't think Van Morrison was instrumental in, in, in writing about the conflict or helping the conflict along, but in his own kind of gruff outsider way, he, 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 he played a couple of moments during that, the, 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 those important years around 19, 1994, 1995. Yeah, but it was almost unavoidable. Like if he didn't speak about it, People of Northern Ireland were saying, why aren't you talking about it, right? Yeah. So it's a lot different, you know. I, I think that's kind of when you see a conflict go, especially as someone who's very much an outsider, when you see people go through a conflict and you have to talk about it, there has to be dialogue, there has to be community, and you see someone who's not doing that and they kind of like push it aside, you know, that's that's a real interesting thing. I think it's everything you said is so powerful today, and it kind of just brings home that you know music is a universal language, and it brings together community, it brings together common ground, even if we're on different sides. You know, seeing Protestants and Catholics at the same concert, you know, during yeah. the troubles, and that's really what the Miami Show Band they they often you know they said we didn't know who we were playing to. People just that was like an escape. Yeah, but it was also just bringing people together in in some way during through a horrible time. So, Stuart, thank you so much for everything and okay. all your insights. Is there anything else you want to add before we? 
No, I think that's it, really. I, I, I just talk at length, so uh, I haven't done this for a while. No, but, you were uh, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were great. And I think it just gives us so much great perspective. You know, we are across the pond. We yeah. are in, you know, a, a very different place in our music and culture. And I, I, I tend to think like, uh, you know, no one's talking because it's so hard to talk, whether that be, you know, people above them saying don't talk. And to hear that there is dialogue really coming through still yeah. in the UK and yeah. in Ireland is, is important because it's, it's how ideas are, you know, it's how we articulate ourselves and how we can question ourselves and think about, you know, other stories through, yeah. through troubled times. And I think we would watch, you know, Beyonce using the imagery of the Black Panther movement or listening to Kendrick Lamar mm-hmm or Childish Gambino video for This Is America, you know, so we, we, you know, I guess we would perceive that there still is really vital, exciting things happening in American popular culture as well, which which in turn inspires us. Yeah. And those are, and you're absolutely right. There are the few moments, Green Day as well. Yeah. You know, still, still talking very openly, especially about current civil rights issues. Yeah. But I guess when you're looking at Woodstock or... The Isle of Wight, you know, you, yeah. you think of these these big movements and it's just it's just a little different, but they're still out there and that's still important to know. Yeah, so. it's still happening under still the stones. Happening. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, Stuart. Well, thank you so much for joining us and taking the time today. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Grounded on Purpose. If you enjoy the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe and leave a rating, which helps others find us and helps our small team to know we should keep producing more episodes. You can also follow us on Instagram at Grounded on Purpose. Every day is a gift with a new lesson. Please join us once a month as we get grounded together on purpose. Thanks again for listening. Mm